Hey, thanks for downloading the latest edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. This is another episode in the Boiling Frogs interview series, co-hosted with Sabelle Edmonds. And if you haven't been there yet, be sure to visit Sabelle's website, boilingfrogspost.com. She and her colleagues are doing a lot of great work there that you won't find in the corporate media. One example recently is disclosures that the Congressional Black Caucus has rolled up a big bunch of money. And the New York Times reported that they've been spending that money on lavish parties instead of scholarships or other intended purposes. And in one of the recent posts at BoilingFrogsPost.com, it was disclosed that the Congressional Black Caucus is very close to Turkish interests. They held a big party at the Turkish embassy, and about half of the members of the Black Caucus are members of the Turkish Caucus. Today's conversation is with Dr. Julian Merciel, and he's an expert on Afghanistan's drug money, and he's going to detail the real lay of the land in that tough terrain of a country and the prospects for U.S. pacification of it. So thanks for listening and stay tuned for a very interesting interview, part of the Boiling Frogs series here on the Peter B. Collins Show. Welcome to Boiling Frogs. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight is fixed. The poor stay poor. Illegal domestic wiretapping, FBI's national security letters, state secret privilege, TSA's one million plus no fly list, persecution of government whistleblowers, perpetual wars, rendition and torture. Can you feel the water boiling? Welcome to the Boiling Frogs with Sabelle Edmonds. I'm Peter B. Collins. Today, our guest is Dr. Julian Merciel. He is a lecturer at the University College in Dublin, Ireland, and he has an interesting background, including uh, many years in the United States. He has a Ph.D. from the University of California at Los Angeles in geography. He also studied in Bourbon Country at the University of Kentucky, also in geography, and he has a bachelor's from McGill University in Montreal. He also publishes at Asia Times at Counterpunch, and he uh, will talk about one interview that was published by Foreign Policy in Focus here in the United States. Dr. Julian Merciel, welcome to our program. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And we're going to talk in particular today about the corruption in Afghanistan. And uh, we will also get more specific about the opium trade there and how it has flourished since the United States invaded Afghanistan uh, eight years ago. Uh, I wanted to start with an article that was published January 20th, 2010, in the Los Angeles Times to give a bit of an overview about corruption in the country that's being occupied by the United States. 
And according to a new United Nations report from their Office on Drugs and Crime, nearly 60% of Afghans regard corruption as their biggest worry, outpacing concerns about the insurgency or the rampant unemployment in their country. Corruption at every level of Afghan society has undermined the confidence in the Karzai government. One of the most striking elements of the report discussed the average amount of a bribe, which is $160. One out of two Afghans report paying at least one kickback to a public official in the past year. The total amount of bribes that Afghans paid in the past year is estimated at 2.5 billion American dollars, roughly paralleling the money generated by the country's opium trade, which they pay at $2.8 billion, and that would be, I guess, at the wholesale level. One other factoid here, Afghans said that they were asked to pay a bribe in 40% of their encounters with senior politicians, and the likeliest reasons for bribes were to cut through red tape or avoid poor service. Now, Julianne, you published in Asia Times, and people can find it online, at atimes.com, an article of December 16th last year uh, entitled The Trail of Afghanistan's Drug Money Exposed. Tell us uh, how the drug trade fits in with the overall structure of corruption in Afghanistan, which is estimated to comprise at least 25% of the country's gross domestic product. Yeah, well, drugs um, are illegal. I mean, the ones that we're talking about now. So uh, to trade them and sell them, um, you have to go through illicit channels, uh, which means in many cases uh, corruption. Um, so that's that's the, that's why they both overlap uh, very much, and that's why in the the, the reports you referred to about corruption, um, the amount of uh, corruption. Uh, and in, in dollar terms, uh, is uh, pretty similar to the the value of the of the opium trade in Afghanistan. Doesn't mean that it's the same dollars, but it means that they're both very big. And the reason, as I said, is because you can't deal um, in drugs illegally. Um, so it brings automatically you have to uh, give bribes to officials, to police officers, or people like that. And that's why they're both um, very much linked. Now, in your article, you state a figure of about $3.4 billion for the opiates trade coming out of uh, Afghanistan. So that's, uh, that's uh, you know, about, uh, all, well, about half a billion dollars higher than the U.N. estimate. Uh, is, is the U.N. number that I originally cited more recent? Or uh, what, what would explain this differential? Yeah, they're more recent. Since December, there's been a new report, uh, the Afghan Opium Survey. They lowered uh, a little bit uh, the value of uh, opium, uh, the opium industry in Afghanistan. But those numbers are very, very uh, much estimates. Um, it's, it could be like one, it could be five, six, seven billion. We don't know. It's really um, an estimate. The way to do it is that they go to villages and they ask um, the village leader, okay, so how much opium is there in your in your village? Uh, so you can see immediately that there's reasons for the, the village leaders not telling you or not knowing. Um, so, yeah, that's why I, mean, I, I put 3.5. That's based on a report, but mm-hmm. it's just 
an estimate. Yeah. Understood. And uh, what you just described in terms of the methodology <laughs> would, would lead to gross understatement because many of the same people who are being asked to cite a figure are involved in the trade or being paid uh, to turn a blind eye to the business that's uh, operating in their territories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All the, even the, when they talk about Taliban um, income from drugs, those are huge estimates. Uh, it's um, it's um, at one point it's almost uh, you don't want to write anything because uh, you wonder if it's not going to be uh, too far off the mark. But um, as, and again, that's because it's an illegal activity, so um, it's, it's easier to it's harder to uh, investigate. But even if the numbers cannot be uh, fully proven or established, uh, one of the erroneous uh, messages that's delivered to American citizens is that the Taliban is uh, really front and center and benefiting from the drug trade and, in fact, uh, funding their insurgent activities uh, with the profits of opium that uh, is exiting Afghanistan. Uh, talk about that a little bit, would you? Yeah, well, that's uh, it's not just about uh, the Taliban. It's been always like that uh, in the U.S. or Western mainstream media. Um, the insurgents, whoever they are, uh, are always pictured as the main um, um, the guilty ones in the drug trade. Uh, the FARC in Colombia is the same story. Uh, it's not to say that they're not involved. They are involved, but... Um, in the case of the Taliban, at least, they're, they seem to be minor players in the, in the drug trade. Um, warlords and uh, police officers, government officials that um, U.S. and NATO forces um, either support or tolerate or don't chase with uh, as much intensity as the Taliban, they're also very much involved, and uh, they don't get as much um, um, targeting as the as the Taliban, um, so that's why the the war on drugs is more uh, is more a pretext to um, attack whoever resists um, um, NATO in this case and U.S. Um, in, in in Afghanistan. And also, it's important to note that very high-ranking officials, including the brother of our puppet uh, uh, selected president, uh, the man who. Uh, presided over a fraudulent election, and then on December 1st, uh, U.S. President Obama uh, used carefully mangled language <laughs> to talk about how this election was consistent with, uh, I don't remember the phraseology exactly now, but it was, it was insulting to me uh, after it, it was shown uh, the widespread uh, fraud that occurred, and yet our president uh, sought to endorse the uh, renewal, shall we say, of the presidency of Mr. Karzai. And his brother, Ahmed Wali Karzai, has uh, long been a CIA asset. Uh, we, of course, are not permitted to know the terms of that relationship, but we know it exists. And uh, it's, it's quite common knowledge uh, that he is uh, involved in the drug trade and appears to run interference uh, for those who really are handling the day-to-day -day operations. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, it, it, again, it reflects a um, historical pattern. I mean, 
the United States, since after the Second World War, has been involved in various uh, conflicts or covert operations. And oftentimes, um, their local allies, wherever uh, they are, um, well, they need to empower those local allies to do their covert operations. And um, those allies sometimes are involved in drugs. And so by supporting them, you... um, uh, you uh, prevent um, their arrest, for instance, and uh, you allow them to um, deal in drugs and cultivate drugs, so drug industry expands in that way. So Wally Karzai, the president's brother, is uh, just one example of that. There's many others in Afghanistan, many of them we don't know who they are, uh, but they act as local allies for um, U.S. and NATO in, uh, in Afghanistan. And um, they, because it's covert operations, not everything, but many of the things they do, uh, the uh, opium trade is well suited to that because it's, um, it's an illegal uh, covert industry in a way. Uh, so that's why um, now it's Karzai that um, came in the news, but there's others uh, that follow the same uh, pattern, police officers or district commanders in Afghanistan who are useful to fight the Taliban or to um, police the borders or whatever. Um, oftentimes they're involved in drugs, and NATO will close their eyes on that. Um, uh, I want to talk about the... Uh general trend with the U.S. media here when it comes to reporting this heroin issue. Mm -hmm. I've been following all the articles, and usually there is this very brief mentioning of this $400 to $500 billion retail value, just a very brief mentioning. And then they move to this $3.4 billion, uh, and that's the value within Afghanistan, which is divided between the some very small percentage, the Taliban, and then the 20 or 21 percent with the uh, Afghan uh, farmers. But nobody mentions the leftover, which is you take this 400, even if you take the lower value, $400 billion, and you take out that $3.5 billion, yet there is no mentioning whatsoever of who are the real profiteers when you're talking about the heroin retail market, nothing. Or who are the other international players? There is almost no mentioning of these players. And in your article, you gave one example, which I believe is a fantastic example, is Turkey. Because even with the various reports coming out of UK, it is usually estimated that 75 to 85 percent of heroin entering UK is coming through Turkey. But the same thing is with the role of some of these Central Asian countries, yet our media here in the U.S., glosses over the entire region, other countries, other players, including the financial institutions. Can you tell us a little bit on this? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, uh, it's, again, the same story as uh, I was talking before with local allies. There's also countries that are allies or even NATO countries. Um that facilitate the traffic. Uh, you mentioned Central Asia, Turkey, and uh, that's right. I mean, they, they go through uh, countries that are allied to the U.S. or to the West, and you'd think that um, if you're really worried about the drugs problem, you'll, act, uh, you'll use the easiest solution. So trying to convince your allies 
is easier than trying to convince your enemies, supposedly. Um, and you, you'd think that the U.S. would try to convince Turkey to stop that trade or do something similar with other countries. But they don't really, I mean, it's not in the news, at least. Um, also for the banks, um, the UNODC said that, um, of course, the banks, Western banks and other banks, um, uh, do money laundering with the drug uh, money. Uh, and for some banks, it was uh, very significant in um, averting bankruptcy in, in recent years. So it's um, it gives a clue as to why the banks are not... Um, um, chased with the same intensity as a Taliban. If they apparently, if they don't get drug money, some of them will go bankrupt. So it's um, and it's and the the orders uh, of magnitude are very different. Like you said, in Afghanistan, it's about three billion dollars or so. But uh, if we move towards the financial system and the retail uh, end of the trade, uh, it's hundreds of billions of dollars. So again. If the concern was really about drugs, uh, you'd think that policymakers would attack the biggest part of the problem, not the three billion um, or so um, that are in Afghanistan. I think Karzai said something one day like, um, we're responsible for 1% of the problem in terms of money, but we get blamed for 95% of the problem. So it's, it's kind of true. That's very true. I have a very high-level DIA source from Defense Intelligence Agency, and this guy was stationed in Afghanistan. He was there for two years, and he, mm -hmm. he still works with the DIA, but he quietly came to me and gave me certain documents and talked about this, uh, the only modern building they just had in 2003 in Kabul called, and a big sign on it saying, Patika Rug and Blanket Company. And it was about nine or ten floors in Kabul, big modern uh, building. And even though it said rock company inside, basically they had the CIA operatives with certain NATO people, uh, NATO operatives, working with some other international operatives on um, heroin-related um, transactions. And uh, he, he basically said, no, our DOD people were not involved with that. But NATO and CIA, not only that they were not trying to stop, in fact, they were working with uh, the certain international operatives in moving and uh, in certain transitions involving this heroin. I mean, would you be shocked to hear a story like this coming from a high-level, uh, let's say, lieutenant colonel who works for the Defense Intelligence Agency? No, because it's um, it's a recurring pattern. I mean, um, the CIA has been involved in so many ways with the drug business over the years that um, you know we never well, we never know the exact extent, especially today, because it's all uh, not covered by the press, I suppose. But uh, historically, it's been uh, you know it's been uh, a long-standing pattern. I mean, it's important to say that. The CIA doesn't, they're not involved for the money. They don't make a profit out of it, except maybe for a few exceptions. It's more a facilitating uh, role uh, that, that they play. And um, I just want to recap some of the numbers we're talking about to clarify for listeners. 
what uh, is estimated as the wholesale value of annual production of opium in Afghanistan is in the range of $3.5 billion. And that turns into a retail market of about $65 billion a year. The four to $500 billion number <clears throat> is from a study uh, that was conducted over a six-year period, or seven-year period, uh, ranging from 2002 to 2008. So I just wanted to clarify that. And also the same, uh, or actually a different report, the U.N. Office of Drug Control's 2009 World Drug Report, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, says that Afghanistan has the world monopoly on opium cultivation, uh, responsible for 92% of the raw materials for heroin in this country, which causes up to 100,000 deaths per year worldwide. So that's a, a quick snapshot of some of the uh, figures that we've been talking about. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Julianne, is the, uh, the, the way that the United States uh, uh, entered Afghanistan in late 2001, and the Taliban government was toppled shortly thereafter. Uh, we aligned with uh, the Northern Alliance, which was a, a series, a group of warlords, and we had uh, connections with them in the 1980s, when we were supporting the Mujahideen uh, against the Soviet occupation. And that goes back uh, originally to Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was the national security advisor for President Jimmy Carter. And uh, what I wanted to ask you is the, uh, the impression that we have here in the States is that uh, those relationships were terminated. And then after our nation was attacked on September 11th, the uh, decision was made that the uh, uh, Taliban was harboring al-Qaeda, and therefore that was a justification for us to invade Afghanistan, and we've been there ever since. What I'd like to know is, uh, were those uh, contacts, those relationships cut off and had to be reinitiated, or was it as simple as picking up the phone and calling some of these warlords like Dostum or uh, Hekmatyar and saying, hey guys, uh, we're back? <laughs> Yeah, well, there certainly had, I mean, I don't know the extent of, of the precise contacts between the um, um, you know, early 90s and 9-11. Uh, I mean, there's certainly some contacts maintained um, uh, when the Taliban was in, uh, was in power. Uh, and uh, like you said, when 9-11 happened, it's basically, uh, it was quick, let's say, um, to find, uh, again, those uh, those uh, allies and get to Afghanistan with suitcases of, of cash, literally, and uh, start allying with them um, against uh, the Taliban. One of the other questions I wanted to ask, which is a little different angle, uh, in the 1980s, many of the Soviet troops who were deployed to Afghanistan, uh, became addicted to heroin. And I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, 80s band from England called The Stranglers, but they produced a series of, uh, of uh, satirical songs about a, a fictional character named Vladimir. And Vladimir was sent to liberate Afghanistan, and uh, he got hooked on heroin. And uh, they're amusing on a certain level, but they're also uh, a reflection of what occurred there. And one of the things that is completely absent from reporting on the U.S. troops who've been deployed to Afghanistan, many for repeated tours, is whether they have uh, gotten uh, fallen into uh, using the local opiate products. 
Do you have any information on that? U.S. troops or Soviet troops. I'm talking about U.S. troops presently there. U.S. troops. Uh, no, I don't have uh, information. I, I don't know uh, if I know the the police, uh, the Afghan police and army. There's big problems of um, of uh, drug consumption. U.S. troops, I don't know to what extent uh, if there is a big problem or or, or something like that. Uh, there's also a huge uh, marijuana industry in Afghanistan. Maybe that's also in other uh, avenues for investigation, but I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, well, much of that, I think, is converted to hashish, and that is far mm-hmm. less addicting uh, than than uh, opium-based products. Yeah. All right. Um, the I think that pretty well wraps up our uh comments and questions on that particular article. Uh, next, I'd like to move to a piece that uh, you wrote that was published by Foreign Policy in Focus, and people can find it at their website at fpif.org. And this is an interview with a woman who is currently suspended from the Afghan parliament, Malalai Joya. Tell us a little bit about her before we get into some of the uh, rather remarkable comments that she made in your interview. Well, Malai Joya is is um, she's quite young. She's maybe thirty one or thirty two, and uh, she's Afghan. And uh, when um, the U.S. invaded in two thousand one, uh, there was a process of uh, state building or attempted democratization or whatever you, we're going to call it, and uh, that involved uh, a series of assemblies and uh, discussions in Afghanistan, and she decided to go to one of those assemblies, and uh, she realized that a lot of the process was uh, controlled by warlords and commanders because they were supported and had been supported by the U.S., and she said uh, she just denounced that in that assembly in '03, and she said, uh, you know, those warlords should be uh, put uh, should be a trial, and they should be put to jail and uh, sued and things like that. And that's how she started her political career, at least the the public one. And she ran for uh, parliament, and she was elected, and. Uh, in Parliament, she she's always uh, she was always accusing warlords of many things, and at one point uh, she was suspended in uh, 2007. And since that time, she's trying to fight this uh, case, and uh, that's uh, where we are now. Now she's uh, she's a very public figure, so she goes around the world and tries to promote her views. And she wrote a book uh, and tried to promote her book and uh, trying to be uh, re-accepted in, in the Afghan parliament. And a couple of quotes. Uh, first from the book, Joya writes that today the Afghan people are tragically sandwiched between two enemies, <clears throat> the Taliban on one side and the U.S. NATO forces and their warlord friends on the other. And in reference to the August election and then the runoff that was canceled later in 2009, She says, talking of elections in the world's most corrupt, mafia-ridden, and occupied country like Afghanistan is ridiculous. 
And as seen, the turnout has been very low because apart from severe insecurity, people had no interest in participating in elections where such infamous elements were candidates, and they know that the future president is already chosen in the White House. A majority of Afghans have come to the conclusion that these elections were just a dirty game that the U.S. and NATO played with the fate of our people, much more undemocratic and fraudulent than the previous one. I think these elections are just efforts by the United States to give legitimacy to its puppet regime in Afghanistan. Everyone knows that there could not be a free and fair election while the Taliban have a presence in 80% of the country, and the rest of it is controlled by brutal warlords, and the government has no control at all. Now, that's a powerful indictment of the uh, illusion that President Obama and others have tried to create, that there is a central government that's functioning, that in 18 months, <clears throat> with an additional 30,000 troops, that we will be able to stabilize the country and begin to transition control to the central government in Kabul and to the Afghan army and national police force. And what Joya is telling us here confirms my suspicions that these, these are pure fiction being offered to the American people in an effort to rationalize the ongoing and now expanding occupation. Yeah, she makes uh, good points. Uh, she's very outspoken, as you can see from the quotes. Um, I think, I think her most important point is the, um, when she says that uh, normal people in Afghanistan are sandwiched between uh, NATO slash U.S. and occupation troops and between uh, the warlords as well. So in, in mainstream media, we we are always told, that, well, we have to fight the Taliban because um, um, otherwise the warlords will, will um, otherwise uh, they'll come back, you know, and uh, dominate the country. So we have a choice between the Taliban or um, uh, NATO. And what she says, she opposes both the Taliban and the warlords and, and the U.S. also. Uh, so it's just she just shows that there is an alternative, a progressive uh, group and individuals in Afghanistan uh, that uh, are never talked about and never supported them. And Malai Joya never receives any funding from uh, NATO or the U.S. government. And she works um, closely, or at least she has the same views as Rawa, Arawa, it's the Revolutionary Association of uh, Women of Afghanistan, and uh, they run schools and clinics uh, some places in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And they're a very important uh, group of uh, grassroots, um, a grassroots group that is very progressive, and Malai Joya is a, a product of their schools in a way. She went to one of their schools uh, when she was um, younger, and uh, Rawa, for instance, has never received any help uh, of uh, any kind from any government. Uh, they just live on other uh, private uh, donations or their own means. Um, and they're a good alternative to the Taliban or the warlords or NATO. So uh, that's the point she makes, that they're sandwiched between um, uh, groups that are very violent and non-democratic, but you have other choices. Um, now, to go back to your point of uh, about the puppet government and the uh, elections, uh, yeah, it's very true. I mean, the U.S. installed Karzai there uh, early after 
the invaded, and um, the whole process leading to his election and the election of the parliament was very uh, undemocratic because all those warlords and commanders were supported by, by the U.S. with money and weapons and political support. And the result is that they dominated the electoral process. Uh, so the parliament has... Um, a lot of uh, warlords and drug dealers and uh, fundamentalists, in other words, uh, not progressive uh, people at all. Uh, and uh, I think it's Human Rights Watch. They had a report uh, in a few years ago saying that something like 60% of the parliament was um, 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 people like warlords and drug lords and uh, you know, uh, religious fundamentalists, and that's a direct consequence of empowering those people on the part of, uh, of occupation troops. Uh, and now the U.S. doesn't like uh, so much Karzai. He's a bit too independent. Sometimes he'll say that you know the Afghans can do their things on their own, and I think that's why we get a lot of report about corruption, like the report that just came out uh, from the U.N., um, the Karzai's cabinet uh, members have been rejected by the, the parliament. Uh, so the U.S. maybe would like to have another candidate, but they don't have someone who uh, is popular enough in, uh, in Afghanistan to replace him. But uh, So there's this tension. In other words, yes, in a way, he's a puppet or supported by the U.S., but it's not to say that um, he's uh, Washington's ideal uh, candidate. Uh, since you're in Ireland, and I suspect you get to read uh, other media publications, that are, whether they're from France, England, or mm -hmm. Germany, I want to ask, ask your opinion on any differences between reporting here by the mainstream media on these issues regarding Afghanistan and what you observe in other nations, at least in Europe, Western countries. Uh, yeah. Sure. Go ahead. Um, well, I think there are differences, but the mainstream media is the mainstream media. Um, I think the big difference is between mainstream media, wherever it is, and the alternative media, uh, wherever it is. Um, Ireland has seven troops in um, Afghanistan. And Ireland, uh, Shannon Airport, that's an airport in the west of the island, uh, is involved in a torture circuit, um, the rendition flights. Um, we never hear about that in the Irish Times or uh, the Irish Independent, which are two big uh, mainstream newspaper. Uh, they don't talk about that. Um, they don't. They don't want to address that. That Ireland is directly involved in those wars of occupation uh, and um, in helping the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan because Shannon Airport is involved in the torture flights, as I said, but also uh, it's, uh, uh, it's one of the points through which uh, U.S. soldiers go to Iraq and Afghanistan and return to the U.S. So there's been about one and a half million U.S. troops that have passed through Ireland uh, since 2001, uh, since the 9/11 um, doesn't care about that. They don't. They don't do anything. They. Um, I tried to publish articles in the Irish Times. They were blocked repeatedly, um, sure. with a few exceptions. So 
yes, there's a difference. I mean, in general, the British press, for instance, or the French press will be a bit more critical uh, of U.S. foreign policy and Western foreign policy. But I think the big divide is really between the mainstream and, and the alternative media. Right. One of the things I do find curious is, is, is uh, the transformation of the participating European countries in these operations. And the question of, well, what happened to the so-called liberal Europe? Yeah, liberal Europe, uh, I mean, I don't really, I mean, that, that's what they like to say, that uh, more liberal, I mean, yeah, domestically, if you look at healthcare or other programs, that's there's a bit of truth in that. But um, the topic on which I, I know the best for that question is the Iranian nuclear crisis um, and the role of Europe that tried to be a mediator or between the U.S. and Iran. And Europe has just been, a, especially today, it's just become a puppet of, of the U.S., um, not even reluctantly, to some extent actively. So um, for me, it's more of a myth in foreign policy terms. I mean, there are small differences, but um, Europe, uh, like in the case of the Iranian crisis, they they just go um, with the U.S. Uh, 95% maybe. Uh, Germany just said today or yesterday that they wanted to have more sanctions on Iran, and Germany usually is this softer power, Britain and France being... Um, harsher on Iran, so um, they. I, I've interviewed diplomats from Europe about that topic, about the Iranian crisis, and I, I don't think I could even tell the difference between their statements and American diplomats' statements on on Iran. Sometimes. We're talking with Dr. Julianne Merciel, as we mentioned, a lecturer at uh, University College in Dublin. And at the moment, we're referring to his interview with uh, Malalai Joya, published at Foreign Policy in Focus, fpif.org. Another uh, couple of quotes from uh, Ms. Joya. The best way to deal with the drugs problem is to end the U.S. occupation, because these were the gifts of the occupation forces to Afghanistan. As long as occupation, drug lordism, and warlordism continue, <clears throat> the opium industry will flourish. And she goes on. In 2001, the United States invaded Afghanistan with many promises and loud slogans of freedom, democracy, and human and women's rights. Our people, being tired of fundamentalists like the Taliban and earlier the Northern Alliance, favored the United States, had high expectations and hopes. But soon, when they saw that the United States was again installing another set of criminals and terrorists like the Northern Alliance, they knew they were badly betrayed. Now the situation of Afghanistan is disastrous, with the United States itself committing many war crimes. These eight years were more than enough for our people to know their real intentions, and now there is an urgent call from our people for the withdrawal of troops. Afghans know now very well that the United States and its allies are once again trying to sacrifice Afghans in their great game in Asia. Now this is a powerful indictment, and it's one that, uh, frankly... I concur with. Uh, explain a little bit more about what she's describing there in terms of the the, the false promises that were made and the reality that, uh, you know, shortly after we toppled the Taliban government, Bush and Rumsfeld 
illegally, at least in U.S. terms, diverted some of the money intended to uh, build a nation in Afghanistan to prepare for the invasion of Iraq. And this, uh, you know, really left the whole issue of Afghanistan not even on a back burner, but uh, so far down the priorities that it either has a... I, I guess my question is, do you see this whole development as intentional on the part of the United States or in some ways unintended because, uh, you know, shortly after we toppled the Taliban, we just didn't care. We wanted to move on. Yeah, well, I mean, U.S. foreign policy is not motivated by any moral concern of any kind. So uh, that doesn't mean that there is not unintended good benefits sometimes. I mean, they happen maybe, you know, one here and there, but they're not intended uh, consequences. So um, when, when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, uh, a lot of Afghans were happy in a way, not because they supported necessarily an invasion, but because the Taliban were removed, and um, that gave them hopes. You know, you, you think that you hope that maybe the United States and the international community will uh, help you in some way. And uh, that's why at the beginning they were a bit, uh, I don't know to what extent, supportive, but more supportive than in Iraq, for instance. In Iraq, after the invasion, very quickly people turned against uh, U.S. troops. Uh, in Afghanistan, um, people were less uh, opposed to them. But quickly, as she says, um, they realized that, um, uh, okay, it's not what we were hoping for, and uh, now we have uh, other problems. Uh, we don't have the Taliban anymore, but we have the warlords, and they're just as bad, maybe maybe worse. Um, um, so, yeah, that, that's what she refers to, uh, and uh, that's just the consequences of, uh, like I said, I mean, the United States uh, doesn't conduct its foreign policy or no country, I think, um, along uh, moral lines. It's about power and other things. Uh, that's why uh, the U.S. has allied with uh, with the warlords from the Northern Alliance. Um, even if they're very uh, anti-democratic and violent, it's because they fulfilled um, the goal of uh, toppling the Taliban uh, better than uh, Malai Joya, for instance, who was not armed and... Uh, um, uh, she wouldn't be as useful for for the U.S. And what she says is is important also because one thing that's often forgotten in discussions um, about Afghanistan and is what do Afghans think? Like during the surge, we had arguments about whether we should surge or not. Um, I, I don't. I haven't seen many uh, mentions of what do the Afghans want? Do they want a mm -hmm. surge or do they not want a surge? Uh, part of the problem is because uh, it's hard to have public opinion polls in a war zone. That's a technical problem. Uh, another problem, more important, is that. Um, uh, establishment uh, people or mainstream media are not interested in uh, finding out what the locals want because, of course, we can uh, predict that it would often be opposed to whatever um, uh, the establishment wants or NATO. Um, so we have to rely on the few polls that we have that are not very 
accurate uh, and uh, on the opinion of progressive people and groups like Malai Joya. So that's why her comments about what Afghans think, uh, well, it's her opinion, but at least um, um, it's an opinion from someone who's from there who's progressive. So that's one important point she makes. Julian, one of the strategies articulated by President Obama was to shift more into a counterinsurgency approach. And in American military parlance, that's reduced to the first uh, four letters, COIN, C-O-I-N. And, of course, what is required for a counterinsurgency strategy to be successful is that we have to provide incentives and, uh, uh, you know, strong rationale for people to reject the insurgency, which uh, we, we must point out is more complex than simply the Taliban and some al-Qaeda fighters. Uh, there is an array of groups, including uh, Hek Matyar's group and uh, a few others, uh, who are challenging the U.S. presence there. But fundamentally, as I see it, we cannot win hearts and minds because of the record that we've established, the alliances that we've made with figures who uh, are not credible or respected by the average citizen of Afghanistan. And fundamentally, they know that we will leave at some point, whether it's in 20 months or 20 years, and that they will once again have to confront the local insurgents who will ruthlessly rout out those who are seen to be uh, conspirators or collaborators with the occupiers. And so, in my view, this is a lose-lose proposition for the United States, that there is no way that we can supplant the local insurgencies and insert ourselves as, as a white knight there to rescue them from evil forces. Your comment? Yeah, no, I agree with what you say. I mean, in theory, we can always dream of a military that's benevolent and puts the Taliban and the warlords in jail and brings uh, development and all that. Uh, that's just on paper, but in practice, it's very clear. I mean, we hear, uh, not every day, but very often about the drones that are uh, you know, shooting missiles at civil killing civilians in Pakistan and on the border. Um, so it's very easy for local people to see that NATO is not a force for... Um, the good. Um, so all this talk about trying to win the hearts and minds, I mean, on paper it might look good, but um, I don't know many populations in the world who would like to have uh, to be occupied by a foreign military power. I mean, it's, it's almost uh, instinctively um, uh, resisted anywhere. Um, so that's why it's, it's very hard to meet those uh, goals of counterinsurgency, and that's why all those discussions that we see in the, in the press about how can we win hearts and minds as a, this way or that way, it's all within the narrow confines of um, a discussion which assumes that, uh, by and large, what we're doing there is, is a good thing, and the U.S. military is trained uh, to do humanitarian uh, work or uh, reconstruction or something like that. Um, 
whereas they're trained to to kill. I mean, that's that's what that's what the military does. Um, if uh, Obama was really concerned about winning hearts and minds, he would surge. Uh, maybe with doctors or school teachers or nurses or people like that, not with uh, troops primarily. And Julian, what is your view of the attack near coast at the forward operating base of the United States uh, right at the end of December? And it's it's an interesting, if a little complicated story, but a Jordanian, uh, what we now know to be a double agent, who had been recruited while imprisoned, and he was imprisoned because he supported, he went to Gaza uh, to tend to those who were injured by the Israeli assault that began in in December of 2008 and concluded uh, about uh, three weeks later. And the U.S. uh, made no effort to stop Israel from this brutal assault that took 1,400 Palestinian lives and injured many others, destroyed a great deal of property. So this Jordanian uh, was uh, uh, taken into custody, and at some point he allegedly flipped to become uh, a U.S. asset. And uh, the U.S. CIA was led to believe that he was going to be able to penetrate al-Qaeda and uh, would take out al-Zawahiri and Osama bin Laden if he, in fact, is still alive. But instead, he showed up with uh, explosives strapped to his body, And in what I would describe as a surgical strike, he took out uh, uh, seven Americans and one Jordanian. Two of the Americans were uh, contractors to the CIA. And while the facts are reported in the U.S. media, they're played down, uh, I think, to a great degree. And what, in fact, he achieved was a surgical strike on those who were controlling the drone attacks in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I find this a remarkable episode, but it's played in the American media as just another assault on the good guys. Yeah, the, um, yeah, that's how it's played in the media, as you said. The very interesting point uh, for me about that uh, Jordanian is that uh, he really embodies um, popular opposition to U.S. foreign policy, um, as you said. He was very much opposed to the Gaza, the attack on Gaza uh, last year that uh, upset him as it upset many other people. Uh, he was also uh, very upset with the invasion of Iraq since uh, 2003. And uh, so those things um, motivated him to do something. And I'm not saying he did the right thing, but uh, he's very much at the embodiment of those um, multiple events that uh, upset people around the world about with U.S. foreign foreign policy. And people will resist. Sometimes they'll be passive. Sometimes they'll resist in a violent way, other times in a nonviolent way. But you're bound to have other cases like that uh, if you you support the attack on Gaza and uh, um, other such... um, foreign policy uh, moves, uh, it will inevitably have repercussions. Uh, and it's linked to a point that's always made, or often made, uh, that uh, if we don't surge, if we don't uh, send more troops to Afghanistan, the Taliban will, or the terrorists will come to fight us in the U.S., so we have to fight them over there. Uh, in fact, there's many reports that say that 
the exact opposite that's happening, that the war on terror has just led to an increase in terrorism. So if you go around the world to try to fight uh, those people, uh, it will backfire because people will react um, eventually against um, the U.S. Or, or the West. So it's a little bit what um, just Jordanian um, did on an individual basis. That makes sense. Um how do you think the Afghans uh, view, I mean, based on just your opinion, this Jordanian uh, guy? Because, you know, as Peter said, in our papers here, it has been downplayed, yet uh, the, uh, those who lost their lives are being talked about as victims. And nobody's talking about what these people were actually doing there. First of all, two of the contractors were Blackwater. And these people mm-hmm. were involved in drone attacks, and they were in offensive. And second of all, if they are saying this is war and that was the combat zone, what would make those people actually victims? Uh, Or what would make the man who blew himself up less of a soldier? So these are all those philosophical questions that come out of this incident. But how do you think most or majority of the Afghans view uh, this incident, or at least this person, this Jordanian? Um, Well, again, uh, I have to rely on inaccurate polls and uh, the views of progressive Afghans that I've talked to or read. Uh, I don't think, if I remember correctly, I don't think um, that many Afghans support uh, violent attacks. Uh, they might be sympathetic to um, the, the principle, the, the cause of resisting the occupation, but uh, the violence is another thing. Um, I read a really good article by... Um, a uh, woman from Rawa, the the women's group I was talking about earlier, about a very similar incident. Uh, it's actually her cousin who blew himself up uh, to on NATO uh, soldiers a few months ago in Afghanistan. So he did the same thing as the Jordanian uh, did. And what she was saying is that, um, of course, those events... Uh, are produced by the occupation of Afghanistan and uh, also by um, uh, the fact that uh, in the madrasas, in some madrasas in Pakistan, for instance, those people are indoctrinated by uh, the Taliban or other uh, fundamentalists. So in a way, she opposed both. She said, uh, you know, there's a reason why it happens, the occupation, but there's other ways of resistance uh, than uh, than that. But I can, in a way, sympathize a little bit with uh, at least the, the resistance behind it without necessarily endorsing the you know, killing um, troops or um, other individuals. What do you think she considered to be the other way of resistance? Because then you're talking about these drones and the tanks and the F-16s and the Apaches, uh, how, how would they resist, I mean, for Rawa, what do they suggest as a mean of resistance? As an alternative, what do they suggest? Yeah, uh, well, they what they do is uh, uh, running schools and uh, health um, clinics and projects like, like that, education uh, and uh, poverty alleviation. Um, now, of course, there's a debate about tactics. Manalai Joya talks about exactly that question in her book also. Um, if she would ever take up uh, weapons you know, to defend her country, and she says 
yes, I would if all other alternatives uh, had been exhausted. So now she thinks that by doing what she's doing, uh, going around the world and trying to be a member of parliament, it's more um, it's more uh, efficient, it's more effective to do it like that uh, for now. So it's basically just uh, regular activism uh, uh, that they, they're proposing. Um, yeah, for instance, Rawa got very well known in, in the West during the Taliban regime because they filmed uh, executions uh, by the Taliban, public executions. Uh, so I suppose they would say that by showing those images on the Internet for people, it can have a big impact uh, on uh, public opinion in, in the West, and that's why now they're trying to they're going in other countries and spread their ideas and message in a way. Um, but, uh, yeah, the question of uh, what's the best way to resist is uh, it's a good one. And I suppose now those groups at least have not given up on nonviolent action. Julianne, in closing, I'd like to ask you to comment on the remarks that uh, Malalai Joya made, uh, again, about the disillusionment over the U.S. promise to protect women's rights and to allow uh, girls to go to school and that women can appear in public without a burqa. And one of the arguments that's made in support of Obama's escalation and in, in support of the contention that we simply cannot leave Afghanistan is that uh, the plight of women would be uh, far worse and, and that it would be compounded by the departure of U.S. and NATO forces. And I find that to be a canard because, number one, uh, we're not doing a very good job of protecting uh, the rights of women and the security of women in the current context. And to imagine uh, that, uh, you know, our withdrawal would result in something worse, in some ways is, is playing a, a game of, uh, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but uh, trying to present a, a phony uh, uh, potential that no one can predict. And I, I certainly don't want to see uh, women's rights or security degraded any further, yet it seems to be illusionary that uh, we are uh, doing anything that's uh, terribly positive about those issues with our military presence there. Yeah, th there was a report uh, last month or so by the UN, and there were others before about um, the situation of women in Afghanistan. It's very clear that uh, it's very bad, and it hasn't gotten better in any significant way. I mean, there are maybe um, you know places like in Kabul, maybe that there were if there have been some improvements. Uh, but uh, by and large, uh, women's uh, rights or position is uh, not at all improved. I mean, we see um, in the news uh, a lot of uh, women commit suicide because they you know they're desperate or because they they're not in a good situation at home or. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, people who want to justify occupations will always, always uh, tell us that it would be worse if there was no occupation. So it's about women, but about the uh, conditions uh, at large uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, and I was in a debate at the university here uh, uh, with a journalist from The Guardian who was arguing exactly that, uh, saying that... Uh, 
There's been schools built and healthcare clinics built since the occupation, so it's good. Uh, so, of course, there's going to be a few good things that happen, but that doesn't justify the occupation at all. I mean, otherwise, you would justify any invasion if, uh, of any country by any country as long as they build a few clinics, you know, in that occupied country. That would justify the occupation. Um, but the important point is that this not, has nothing to do with the um, intention of the U.S. or NATO. Their intention is not to, um, you know, primarily to bring uh, humanitarian development. Uh, I mean, it, it is just to the extent that allows them to conduct their military occupation uh, more easily. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, if, let's say today uh, all occupation troops leave uh, Afghanistan. It's a big debate in, even among progressives. Uh, what's going to happen? Is it going to be worse? Is it not going to be? Is it going to be the same? Um, I'd say a few years back in 2005, 2006, and before that, um, a lot of people were saying, even people in Rawa uh, would have maintained that um, a good solution would have been to remove the, the foreign troops, but to have some kind of UN peacekeeping force to make sure that the warlords and the Taliban would not fight and uh, kill uh, or rape uh, ordinary people. Um, that's what that was at a time that um, the U.S. and the insurgency had, were not fighting as much as they are today. Today, from what I hear among progressives uh, in Afghanistan, um, it's gotten so bad in terms of uh, drones and strikes and just airstrikes on the Taliban and Taliban uh, attacks that if you remove the foreign troops, it'll just make it easier because uh, we'll progressive people or normal Afghans would only have the Taliban and the warlords to fight, uh, and they'll have removed the third uh, enemy, uh, the foreign uh, troops. So the position now seems to be that uh, if foreign troops leave, things won't be perfect. There might be some kind of civil war, but uh, that would be um, a lesser evil compared to fighting with those three um, groups that are uh, just uh, making things uh, worse, um, but it's uh, it's an open question. I mean, what's going to happen? Sepul and Rawa, for instance, would not believe in a UN peacekeeping force now because they don't believe in the UN. Others would say, yeah, it's really not perfect to have UN peacekeeping troops, but uh, it might be uh, better than what we have now. So it's a debate among progressives. Uh, what to do. But the key point, I think, to remember when we talk about withdrawal and those questions surge is that it's not up to you know, me or uh, McChrystal or Obama to decide. It's up to the Afghans to decide what they think is best, and we should work to make those conditions happen under which they can uh, decide what uh, is best for their region or their country at large. Let me underscore your comments with a closing quote from uh, Malalai Joya. Women's condition in some cities have slightly improved since the Taliban regime. But if we compare it with the era before the rule of fundamentalists in Afghanistan, it hasn't changed much. Afghan women had more rights in the 60s to the 1980s than today. Rapes, abductions, murders, violence, forced marriages are increasing at an alarming rate never seen before in our history. 
women commit self-immolation to escape their miseries, and the rate of self-immolations is climbing in many of the provinces. Afghanistan still faces a women's rights catastrophe. The root cause of this ongoing catastrophe in Afghanistan is that the government is controlled by fundamentalists of both brands, jihadis and Taliban, who are constantly nourished by the United States and its allies. Dr. Julianne Merciel, thank you for joining us from Dublin today. Thank you very much for having me.